Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Buddhist practice is only somewhat effective in improving our well-being in the context of poor social conditions. Rather, the choice of social conditions is a critical factor of practice itself as significant as any other factor we bring to bear in practice. As we saw last week, in order to make progress in practice, we surround ourselves with admirable friends, we choose an appropriate livelihood, and if we're really serious about practice, we join the monastic sangha, which provides the optimal social conditions for support of Buddhist practice. It is a mistake to regard Buddhism as self-help in the sense of improving our individual well-being in spite of inappropriate social conditions, unwholesome livelihood, hostility from others, exploitation, excess competition, disharmony, threats to survival. Buddhist practice may provide some relief and meditation practice is widely utilized for this purpose. But little real spiritual progress is likely to ensue under these conditions. Unfortunately, we now live in a society with relatively limited choices about our situation in life. Buddhism is at the same time unfairly viewed as an escape from the world or people think that there is some added virtue in practicing in the world, which is to say under social conditions that are not supportive of Buddhist practice themselves. What the Buddha taught was to acknowledge the world quite frankly, along with what is problematic about the world, including our own responses to our conditions, but then to refuse to participate in that which is harmful. We do that at many levels. We do that in our individual thoughts, when we observe the many manifestations of greed, hatred, and delusion in our lives, then refuse to act on them and eventually bring their presence in the mind under control through practices like following precepts and guarding the sense doors. We also do that when we notice the elements of our social context that encourage that greed, hatred, and delusion in ourselves. Through advertising, popular entertainment, many of our cultural values, once again, conditions of our livelihood, even many aspects of our education system, and refuse to participate in these. Non-participation is renunciation, nekkama, a primary guiding factor in Buddhist practice. Ethically, through the practice of non-participation or renunciation, we become harmless, ahimsa, but we go beyond that. Kindness, compassion, 
in endeavoring to improve the well-being of others manifest, we would expect that the recognition of the kinds of social dysfunction that threaten our own spiritual development would make radicals of us all. We are in a position now to address Slavoj Žižek's critique of Buddhism as the hegemonic ideology of global capitalism. He's not wrong, insofar as Buddhism is understood primarily as self-help in the West, which it probably is, though certainly not across the board. Buddhism has certainly been most successfully promoted in this guise, particularly in the mindfulness movement. I think what Zizek has in mind is the poor, overworked, and underpaid wage slave afraid of his employers, fearful of losing his job at any moment, coerced into complying with any requirements his boss demands, even to be on call when he is not officially working, yet who is told that he is a free agent, a sovereign individual, and as such inherently motivated by greed, personally responsible, for the development of marketable qualities in a competitive market. Part of this personal responsibility is to be content with his lot in life. Mindfulness eases the pain, probably without the side effects of popping a lot of pills or drinking ourselves under the table every evening. Zizek continues, One is almost tempted to resuscitate the old infamous Marxist cliché of religion as the opium of the people, as the imaginary supplement to terrestrial misery. The Western Buddhist meditative stance is arguably the most efficient way for us to fully participate in capitalist dynamics while retaining the appearance of mental sanity. Notice, to Zizek's credit, that he takes care to attribute this hegemonic ideology to the Western Buddhist meditative stance. That's good, because the way Buddhism has been represented in the West often has little to do with what the Buddha taught or with Eastern traditions. I agree with the assertion that the most troubling aspect of many modern spiritualities is precisely that they are not troubling enough. My hope has been for many years that the fundamental radicalism of Buddhism would be an exception to that. Robert Scharf worries that the ethical perspective of modern mindfulness, in spite of its root in a critique of mainstream values and social norms, nonetheless resembles mainstream consumer culture requiring, for instance, no change in how we live our lives. Bhikkhu Bodhi fears Buddhist practices could easily be used to justify and stabilize the status quo, becoming a reinforcement of consumer capitalism. This is basically Zizek's critique. Buddhism is certainly not unique in being co-opted by the status quo or by powerful interests in society. It seems to happen across the board. Christianity certainly has strong 
foundational resources for challenging the dysfunction of society. But alongside Martin Luther King and liberation theology, you get prosperity gospel. What distinguishes Buddhism, along with some other Eastern teachings, as the ideology of global capitalism for Zizek and others is perhaps that Buddhism possesses strong contemplative resources ripe for exploitation by the personally responsible, and perhaps that without a theistic foundation, it is acceptable to the non-religious. Even new atheist Sam Harris has embraced Buddhism, or at least certain aspects of it. Spirituality, if not religion in general, is increasingly commodified as providing a kind of spiritual marketplace arising in a pluralistic context in which free agents need no longer accept the authority of family traditions. The term spirituality itself, as in, I'm spiritual but not religious, apparently came into vogue in the 1950s with the rise of the consumerist lifestyle, with decidedly mix-and-match, plug-and-play, build-your-own tendencies. It has been argued that this led to a substantial corporate takeover of the cultural space of spirituality by the 1980s, maybe beginning with the way Christmas is celebrated. Thomas Sello, who's the guy who wrote Human Thinking is an Individual Improvisation Enmeshed in a Sociocultural Matrix, has an intriguing idea. Psychoanalysis is common in our modern world. Its aim is to seek out and resolve dysfunction at the individual level. Since, as he argues, most cognition is social with individual improvisation, how about a similar form of analysis, but for seeking out and resolving dysfunction at the social level? This may seem far-fetched, and I'm really outside my field, but I propose that Buddhism has the resources to make a significant contribution to this endeavor as a kind of tool for socio-analysis. The fundamental Buddhist idea of the self as a cognitive construct provides the key, especially when we also recognize that we are talking primarily about social cognition here. The Buddha-to-be's own spiritual breakthrough came with his discovery of the Middle Way, which is conceived in a number of ways, but initially as a course between extreme or morbid asceticism and a hedonistic lifestyle. Before this discovery, he had given up a life of luxury and undertaken a practice of bodily neglect, bringing him to the brink of starvation and collapsing health. It didn't work. He recognized the importance of bodily health in spiritual progress. The Buddha doesn't explain the principle at work here, but it seems clear that the self went into defensive mode. The Bodhisattva was not a Buddha yet, he still had a self, and that self was in a panic. The primary role of the self must be to protect the biological integrity of the organism. 
we do not relinquish ourselves in situations of fear. It follows that we should not choose extreme deprivation for ourselves, nor, out of kindness, should we wish for a society that produces deprivation for others. When are we fearful in a social context? Certainly insecurity about unemployment, faithfulness of our partner, deprivation in all of its forms, including parental abuse or lack of care. These are likely to inhibit spiritual progress. A dominant value in our modern culture is materialism or consumerism, the desire for material goods and sensual experiences and our drive to form a personal identity around these. Cultural values are acquired generally through association with others in our own social circle. A degree of materialism is plausibly found in any culture, but with us it is blinding. Immediately we see that materialism contradicts core Buddhist values. In fact, since it's based in craving and appropriation or clinging, the Dharma predicts that it will be a source of suffering. This turns out indeed to be the case. Tim Kosser's book, The High Price of Materialism, published by MIT Press, just to underscore its credibility, is a good source for studies on this. Materialism is a value or an attitude that strives for wealth. It is not wealth itself. Materialism is embraced unevenly in our culture. So there is a continuum from materialist to non-materialist, even among the poor. Studies show that materialists are less happy or satisfied than non-materialists have higher rates of drug and alcohol abuse, higher rates of depression and anxiety, even headaches and backaches. They tend to have lower self-esteem and impulse control and fewer positive emotions, less enjoyment of experiences. They are also socially more isolated and less cooperative. Here is an interesting one. 20.5% of the dreams of materialists are about death, compared to 3% among non-materialists. What are the conditions that lead to materialism? Primarily, deprivation in early childhood, poverty, an insecure family environment, lack of a nurturing family, Interestingly, people from poor nations tend to be more materialistic. I notice this even with the monastic community in which I dwell. Most of my Dharma brothers are Burmese, that is, from an extremely poor country, but living in the USA. Monks, of course, have cell phones. We need to communicate. But all of them have smartphones, while I make do with a flip-open dumb phone. And of course, a primary conditioning factor for materialism is mass marketing. People who watch more TV tend to be materialists. Of course, mass marketing has its own origins in the conditioned arising of things. Taking hold in the USA in the 1920s to turn our cultural values upside down, 
Frugality was a primary value before that, with strong Protestant roots. Is there an upside to materialism, like maybe greater prosperity? Actually, materialists are often less successful in achieving their goals because they tend to be asocial and therefore do not benefit from the enhanced productivity that comes from cooperation with others. When they do experience material success, their elation is short-lived. In the long term, their success brings no increase in well-being. Even lottery winners end up being no happier than the losers. It seems that materialism is an out-of-control cultural value that leads to poor social outcomes. In Buddhist practice, we discourage materialism on an individual basis through our practices that discourage craving, both craving for sensuality and for becoming, that is, craving for material things themselves and for the construction of an ego self by appropriating such material things as me and mine. These practices that counter materialism and its relatives take various forms, but begin with the practice of generosity. A simple practice of non-Buddhist origin is never, ever watch an advertisement. Long before I knew about Buddhism, I adopted this practice simply because I found commercials so offensive. I used the mute button continuously when watching TV. And today, I have all kinds of ad blockers on my computer. The monastic sangha furthermore discourages materialism as an isolated counterculture in which the counter values of simplicity and renunciation dominate. Moreover, out of kindness and compassion, we as Buddhists, for whom dependent co-arising is our creed, are concerned with disabling the conditioning social factors that lead to runaway materialism in our broader culture, a source that continually reproduces our individual woe.